Roosevelt's. He had one of the most dramatic paths to the presidency, I think, in history. He was born on October 27, 1858, to a wealthy family. When he was first born, he was very sick. He had some chronic asthma that was really bad, and the doctors even told his parents that he wouldn't make it. But his dad was a tough man. He was a very driven man, and so he started working with his son, even from a young age, to live a vigorous and strenuous lifestyle that would toughen him up so that he could fight this sickness. So he grew up with this sickness from an early age, but he actually ended up living. He graduated. He built up his strength. He graduated from Harvard College to then drop out of Columbia Law School the next year and enter public service at age 23. In 1884, his wife and his mother died on the same day. And this caused him to go and work up at a cattle ranch that he owned in North Dakota, where he kind of lived off the land. He hunted game and he drove cattle and even worked as a sheriff. He married once again and had six kids and had a couple different stints of trying to get into political office. He moved back to New York and tried to become the mayor of New York City in 1886, but he was unsuccessful. While he was trying to work his way through the political system, he ended up joining the Spanish-American War in 1898 and became the colonel of the first U.S. Volunteer Cavalry known as the Rough Riders and became a national hero due to his bravery in the Battle of San Juan Hill. He would later come back and become the governor of New York after that and then was chosen to become President McKinley's running mate and the vice president. And then when McKinley was assassinated on September 6, 1901, he became the youngest president of the United States at just 42 years old. Now, I've heard if you were to talk to Theodore Roosevelt, he did not sound like a president. He was a pretty rough and tough man, but he had this unusual path to the presidency in the late 1800s um, that's pretty well known today. In our text this morning, we see an incredible conversion of a man named Saul, who against all odds ends up becoming a Christian. He's called in this text Saul of Tarsus. This was where he was from. He was a zealous Jewish Pharisee. He was well-educated in the Jewish law. And you can see that if you read any of Paul's letters throughout the New Testament. Now we know obviously in this text he's called Saul. Later on his name is going to be changed to Paul and that's the apostle that we get all most of the New Testament letters from later. He'd end up writing over half of the New Testament. He was educated by a Jewish teacher named Gamaliel. We saw him back in Acts 5 when the apostles were under arrest. And Gamaliel had them hold off on killing them to say, look, if this Christianity movement is really fake, if it's not from God, then it will be destroyed on its own. It'll just die out. But if it is from God, then there's nothing you can do to stop it. Saul was present, as we saw a couple weeks ago, at the execution of Stephen. He was the one that they dropped their garments and coats to so that they could have more mobility in throwing stones at Stephen. And then in Acts 8, we see Saul overseeing the execution of many Christians and the persecution and the martyrdom of some of these people. And even here in Acts 9, we see him zealously persecuting the church. And so as a Jewish person, he would be the last person you would expect 
to become a Christian or a leader of this Christian movement. Yet God often loves to do things that we would not expect. He often loves to save people who we would not ever expect to be saved. In this passage, we see the miraculous saving power of God in the life of Saul of Tarsus. When Saul would later become Paul, he would call himself the chief of sinners. And I often read the New Testament letters from Paul thinking about how much guilt and regret and remorse he had for persecuting the church for so many years. So the question that immediately comes to our mind this morning is how could God save Paul? Why would God use Paul, who was this most unlikely of converts? And as we consider that question, we really consider this next question, how could God save any of us? How could God save any of us? When the truth is, all of us are the chief of sinners. All of us have rejected God. The same grace that it took to save Saul of Tarsus is the same grace that it takes to save you and I as well. We not, I not only want us to consider the love that God has in saving each and every one of us, but also the fact that we get to play a part in God's miraculous saving process. And I don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we can save anyone because we definitely can't. But when you share the gospel, you are allowed to participate in this process that God has planned out. He says, before the foundation of the world, and yet you get a small little part in being used by God to help share his gospel. And so what I want us to see together this morning is this. We get to participate in God's miraculous saving process. I had a pastor that once told me um, in regards to witnessing, he would say, when you share the gospel with someone, God gets the glory, others get the benefit, and we get the joy when we share the gospel with someone else. We know it's all the work of God, and yet from our perspective, we get the incredible joy of sharing the gospel. And so let's look at this passage, and we'll see both an unlikely convert and an unlikely messenger. Notice with me, first of all, in verses 1 through 9, God loves to save the most repulsive of sinners. Look with me at verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So remember, Saul has been this person that we've kind of met throughout the book of Acts. And now Luke brings us back to Saul here to show us his conversion. But he starts by saying that Saul was breathing out threats. This is an interesting word. It's the only time this word for breathe is used in the New Testament. It means he was hostile, um, aggressive, and really obsessed with persecuting Christians. He was turned off to the Christian movement. You know, you think about Saul, he was there for all of Stephen's sermon when he was being persecuted right before he was killed. And while for most of us we think, man, maybe he was being convicted at that moment and seeing the light of the gospel. But in Saul's rejection, I really think he was hardening his heart to the gospel in that moment. And it caused him to become even more and more obsessed with persecuting the early church. And that's what we see 
happen here. We see Paul is breathing out these threats, and it says in murder. Now, was he actually murdering people? Well, no, but he was arresting them with the purpose of trying to have them executed later for becoming a Christian. So this is what Paul is obsessed with. He's driven towards this, and so much so that we find out that he's not only wanting to persecute people in Jerusalem, but he's wanting to move the persecution out to other parts of Judea. Now, this is interesting because we saw in Acts 8, persecution is actually what God used to spread the church out. They were all localized in Jerusalem, and God used persecution, as well as, I think, even the sermon at Pentecost, where you have all these different ethnicities of Jewish people saved. God uses persecution, though, to spread the gospel out to these other places because they are really running for their lives. But think about this, if now the persecution is spreading to Damascus and all these other Jewish areas, where else would they go? And so Saul is trying to squash out this Christian movement, and that's why he's going to the high priest. Now the high priest probably during this time was still Caiaphas, who we saw oversee the death of Christ and also persecute the apostles earlier in Acts. He goes and he asks for letters. These letters were, um, they're a little bit of a debated subject when people study this passage. Some wonder, why did he need letters? Because the Romans actually gave the Sanhedrin authority to um, enact their law in other parts of the Jewish area, not just in Jerusalem. But these letters were probably sent to the different synagogues in Damascus to respect their authority so that there wouldn't be any friction or um, contrast or conflict between those two synagogues. So he wanted to have these letters. He wanted to try to do things right so that he could go and persecute more Christians. He would go to Damascus, he would arrest them, and he would bring them back to stand trial and possibly be executed. Now, Luke uses an interesting word here to refer to the Christian movement. Maybe you noticed it in verse 2. He said, so if, any, so if he found any belonging to the way. Now, we see this word used a couple of times in the book of Acts. And you, like me, were probably wondering, what does this word mean? Well, it refers to Christianity. It refers to the Christian movement. And it's actually something that the Christians would call themselves to show that Jesus was the only way of salvation. In John 14, 6, Christ says, I am the way the truth, and the life. They were showing that Christ is the only way to be saved. And it'll be used a couple more times in the book of Acts. And we see Paul is going to, or Saul is going to Damascus, and I will probably call Saul Paul at different times. You know that I'm talking about the same person, okay? <clears throat> Saul will go to Damascus, which was 135 miles north of Jerusalem. It was a large commercial center between Egypt and Mesopotamia, and it had a large Jewish population there. Damascus was probably um, receiving different Christians who were being persecuted for their faith during that time. And apparently the Christian movement is growing because Saul wants to go there and persecute them. Now look with me at verses 3 and 4. It says, Now as he went on his way... He approached Damascus. Now, we don't know exactly where on the road to Damascus this took place. It's a long road to get up to Damascus. 
But somewhere on the road, he sees a light shining down from heaven. And in verse 4, it says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Saul sees this bright light. We don't know. We know he becomes blind from this experience. But we don't know exactly what he's able to see. At this point, he's just able to see this bright light. And if you think about later Paul's theology of salvation, he'll talk about in 2 Corinthians 4 that mankind's mind is darkened. They're darkened in their understanding. But God causes light to shine into darkness when someone understands the gospel. And so in Paul's mind, you can imagine thinking of his own conversion experience. He's walking in darkness. He's walking in his own hardened heart, but God is causing this light literally to shine down into Paul, and he's blinded by it. He can't see anything. My senior year of college, I was roommates with my best friend Jake for about seven or eight weeks before I became the residential advisor of my dorm. Now, he was asleep one night. I'd come home from work at about 11 p.m. or so, and he would often tell me I could turn on my desk lamp, which was clipped to my desk. It was a bright little bulb that I would use to work on homework and things like that if he was asleep. So I came in, and I had some homework to do before I went to bed. So I turned on that desk lamp, but I did not notice where I had it pointed because it was one of those you could kind of turn it around and move it in different ways. And I didn't realize I had it pointed right in Jake's eyes. So when I turned on the desk lamp, I heard this scream, this, ah! And I looked over, and he is blinded by this desk lamp that is pointed, I mean, right into his eyes. And so I talked to Jake about it, and it, he said it took him a couple minutes to kind of fully regain his sight. And he said, every time I closed my eyes, it was like I was seeing the sun just burned into my eyes whenever I would close them. And we still laugh about that story But you imagine how bright this light must have been to blind Saul from heaven as he is going to persecute Christians. Now we'll find out later the other people with Saul didn't hear the voice or didn't see the light. They only heard the voice, which again is just fascinating. And so this voice from heaven and notice Saul doesn't recognize it yet. He doesn't know who is talking to him. And it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so Saul responds in verse 5. And he says, who are you, Lord? Now you wonder, why does he call him Lord? Some think he's just being polite. He's just using Lord to, you know, somebody's blinding you. You're probably going to be respectful and polite to them, you know, so they would turn off the light. But I don't think he's doing that. Some think he's referring to Jesus, but he's asking, who are you? He doesn't know who Jesus is yet. So this is a term that kind of falls somewhere in between those two views where I think he knows in some way this is God or some kind of God-like power. And he's acknowledging it as Lord, even though he doesn't know who it is yet. And notice how Jesus responds. He says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Now, once again, we see in this passage the difference between some of the different translations. If you're using a King James Bible or maybe another translation, yours will say something like, why do you kick against the pricks or kick against the goads? If you look later at Paul's um, recount, or when he um, tells this story later in Acts and 
Acts chapter 25 and 26, he will actually use that phrase. And so I think that the King James is using that phrase because it's used actually later in Acts. And what does that tell me? Well, it tells me it was probably said here. That's probably what Christ said, but maybe the earliest manuscripts didn't include that. So whether or not it was part of the original or not, we're not exactly sure. But I will say that Christ probably said that because Paul will say later in all the translations in Acts 26, why do you kick against the pricks? Why do you rub up against this thing that you can't get past? That's not really an important part of this passage per se. What's most important is that Jesus tells him, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Now, if you can imagine being Saul and hating Christianity, you have so much anger and hate and frustration towards this movement. You've given your whole life, really, at this moment to persecute Christians. And now, who do you meet on the road to Damascus? You meet Jesus. And all that hate and anger is immediately turned into fear. It's immediately turned into respect and probably obedience in recognizing the power of who Christ is. Notice what Christ is saying. He says, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. When you persecute Christians, you persecute me. Now, this is something we're going to see in this chapter today, or in this passage in Acts. This relationship between Christ's suffering and the church's suffering. When Christ suffer, or when the church suffers, when they're persecuted in some way, they actually resemble Christ, who we know suffered for us as well. And then vice versa, when you persecute the church, you actually persecute Christ. Christ takes this very personally. Now we're told in through all of the New Testament, you will suffer for the gospel. In fact, Paul even says to Timothy, all who aspire to live a godly life will be persecuted. But we see this unique relationship between Christ and the church who is persecuted. He gives them some instructions in verse 6. He says, rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. So Paul is told to go into the city of Damascus, but notice at this moment, he's not told who he's going to meet or what is going to happen to him. Jesus kind of leaves him hanging at this moment. And then in verse 7, we finally see, we're actually not told that there were men traveling with him, but we see that there are in verse 7. It says, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Why were they speechless? Because they were hearing a voice but seeing no one. They saw no light. They saw no person talking. They only heard what Jesus was saying to Saul. You often look at this passage and you think, man, what must it have been like to be Saul, blinded by this light, confronted by Christ here on the road to Damascus. But think about what it would have been like to be one of these servants who's riding with Saul and you don't see anything. And all of a sudden Saul falls off his horse seems to be blinded, and you start hearing a voice from nowhere talking to him. It would have been pretty amazing. So in verse 8, we see Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. He was blinded. Now later it will say something like scales 
were formed over his eyes. And we're not exactly sure when these scales were there, but when he receives his sight, it says scales fell off from his eyes. So these friends of his, these people traveling with him, led him by the hand. Why they have to do that? Because he couldn't see anything. And they led him to Damascus. And then in verse 9, it says, He was there without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now later we find out that he's actually praying during this time. He's fasting, he's praying. And when you're blinded like that, there's not much you really can do. He's waiting to receive his sights. We see this dramatic conversion of Saul of Tarsus, a man who was diametrically opposed to the gospel. He would call himself in 1 Timothy 1.15, the chief of sinners, the one who's rejected Christ the most. And it's easy for us in this passage to think about, man, what a dramatic conversion it would be for Saul, who was totally opposed to the gospel, and yet God saves him on the road to Damascus. But Saul, who would have become Paul, would later tell us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that no one on their own seeks after God, that there's none righteous, no, not one. You see, when Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, he recognizes something about himself, and that is that we're all the chief of sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's true for you, and that's true for me. Whether you were saved at 6 or 65, whether you led an objectively good life before you were saved, or whether you were seen in the eyes of the world as evil, all of us rejected God before we were saved. And so as you look at this first point in your notes, God loves to save the most repulsive of sinners. You could cross out the most repulsive of sinners, and you could say, God loves to save me. God loves to save us. Because what this passage shows us is the saving power of God in salvation. The same grace that it took to save Saul is the same grace that it takes to save us as well. If you're here this morning, do you believe this gospel? This gospel is available to all who would believe in it. Do you believe in the saving power of the gospel that God can save you? If you're a believer, if you've been a believer for a little bit or for a while, do you remember your conversion? Maybe you don't remember the exact day that it happened, but do you remember that transformation that you had in the gospel? Do you remember how lost you really were before you found Christ? Just like Paul was physically blind, we were spiritually blind. Just like Paul was rejecting the gospel, we rejected the gospel as well. We talked about that in Sunday school in Romans 1, how mankind sees God's creation, but then turns and does their own thing. They reject it. God loves to save the most repulsive of sinners, and we do well to remember that often. Secondly, notice with me that God loves to use the most unlikely of messengers. <coughs> God loves to use the most unlikely of messengers. Notice verse 10 with me. 
Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. We don't know much about this man named Ananias. We don't know anything about his previous life. We don't know exactly who he was. There's a chapel actually in Damascus today that is named after Ananias. Some think it is his house of where he grew up. So we see God call Ananias to this task. It reminds us a bit of some of the Old Testament prophets. Do you remember Samuel, who hears God calling to him in a voice? And Samuel responds, here I am, Lord. And Ananias does the same thing. Now, Ananias was probably already living in Damascus, and he probably heard the gospel from someone who was being persecuted, from someone who went to Damascus and shared the gospel with him. And I'll explain why I think he lived in Damascus for a long time in a moment. But notice what God says to him in verse 11. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight and the house of Judas, and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For he, for behold, he is praying, and has seen a vision of, that a man named Ananias would come and lay hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. So God speaks in this vision to Ananias that he would go to this street called Straight. Now this street in Damascus is actually still there today. The house that he would go to is probably a companion of Saul, a Jewish companion that he was going there to meet. He was probably already planning on staying there. This is the first time we see him called Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus was a city in Sicilia. He was probably there until he went to grammar school as a boy. It reminds us, though, of some of his Greek heritage. He was a Jewish person. But he was also a Roman citizen as well. And this is important as you read the rest of the book of Acts. He's instructed to go and lay hands on Saul. And we'll talk about what that means here in a moment. But he is told to go and lay hands on him so that he would receive his sight. Now, if you're Ananias, you've heard of Saul. And we see that he actually has heard of Saul of Tarsus here in verse 13. It says, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias has heard of Saul. His reputation precedes him. Now again, this is why I think Ananias already lived in Damascus. Because if he was in Jerusalem, he probably would have experienced this persecution. But instead, here it says he just heard, hears from others about it. So my guess is he was living in Damascus. He saved from someone who was persecuted and fled to Damascus for safety. But even still, Ananias has a healthy fear of this Saul of Tarsus. Notice that Saul's plan actually, the news of what he's going to do in Damascus, actually beats him to Damascus. They knew that he was going to go there and arrest different Christians. And so Ananias, rightfully so, was worried about this. If you were told that you had to go share the gospel with someone who you thought might persecute you, put you in jail, and even kill you, you would not want to go. 
Ananias was being asked to go to someone who had the power to end his life. And yet, God calls him to go. Look at verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go. Notice he doesn't say, go and your life will be spared. Notice he doesn't say, go and you won't be persecuted, even though this is what happens. God just tells him to go. And notice the reason he gives in verse 15. For he is a chosen instrument of mine. This is an interesting word that God uses. Chosen shows how he was selected by God for special use. This instrument is something, a person that has a specific function, and they're set apart by God. Paul would be a chosen vessel by God. Notice he talks about this mission. He says, he would be a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now, we often think of Paul as just being the apostle for the Gentiles, right? He's the apostle sent to the Gentiles. But here it says he's here for the Gentiles, the kings, and the Jews as well. And what does that show us? Well, we actually see that first he shares the gospel with the Jews. He even says so in Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel to the Jew first, but also the Gentile. Paul shares the gospel with Jews We see in the end of Acts, he also shares the gospel with kings. He shares his testimony with these different kings. But his ministry, as we see in Acts, is mainly to the Gentiles as well. God doesn't give Ananias any sort of certainty about his own life, but only about what he's going to do through Saul, who would become Paul. That God was going to use him for his own purpose. Saul was an unlikely convert, and Ananias was an unlikely messenger as well. (coughs) Notice what else he says in verse 16. I actually find this verse very interesting. For I will show him how much he will suffer for the sake of my name. Saul's been persecuting people. Saul's been making people suffer. But if you look at the life and ministry of Saul, who would become Paul, we see that he would suffer even more. He talks about his sufferings in 2 Corinthians, how he was beaten, arrested, shipwrecked at different times. How, as he writes a lot of his letters, he's doing so from prison in chains. He has others abandon him as he's sharing the gospel he eventually would lose his own life. Paul suffered for the sake of the gospel, and that is foretold to happen even at his conversion here in Acts 9, 16, that he would suffer greatly for the gospel. Notice as well, we see this connection again between Christians suffering and Christ's suffering as well. Christ suffered, so that means we suffer like him. But when you persecute the church, you also persecute Christ. This connection between Christians and suffering for Christ. Ananias is obedient to this mission that is given to him. 
<coughs> he departs, it says in verse 17, and entered the house. It says, and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So he lays hands on him. There's nothing especially significant about this laying on of hands. It's just something they did at this moment for really more commissioning. But this was how they what they used to symbolize this here. He regains his sight at this moment. It shows how he goes from spiritual blindness to spiritual vision. It says he also was filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, we see this special marking of when the Spirit enters Saul's life. Notice in verse 18, it says, And things like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Saul, for whatever reason, we don't know if he had scales the entire time. It doesn't appear to be that way from when he first is blinded. It says he opened his eyes and just couldn't see. But for whatever reason, these scales, which are like flaky pieces of skin, fell from his eyes so that he could see again. And he regained his sight. It says, then he rose and was baptized, showing the connection between baptism and conversion. Did baptism save Saul? No. But did baptism symbolize his new spiritual life? Was it a sign to all who were Christians that Saul of Tarsus had now become a Christian? Yes, absolutely. And so he was baptized, and then it says, taking food, he was strengthened. Now, one question that we have as we read this passage is, when was Saul actually saved? Was he saved on the road to Damascus? Or was he saved here when Ananias comes and shares what God has told him? And I would say the answer is yes. I would say the answer is yes. Sometimes we're so narrow in how we view salvation that we don't think that it happens over a multitude of days. What do I mean by that? If you were to ask God, when did he save me? You would probably say, before the foundation of the world. God planned out salvation. Now, did Paul respond to the gospel? Yes. But we see that the gospel works in his life from the moment where he's blinded on the road to Damascus until, I think, when he meets Ananias. We see this saving process at work in Saul's life. Either way, we know for sure that as Paul meets Ananias and receives his sight, he is a Christian. Now, if you watch and you see what he says later about his own conversion, he would actually reference the road to Damascus as when he's saved. So again, we see there's some ambiguity to what actually happens here when he's actually saved. But again, I think it happens over the course of a couple days. Saul's salvation is such a great testimony of the work of the gospel. We sang a song this morning, And Can It Be at the beginning of the service, it was written immediately following the conversion of Charles and John Wesley on May 21st, 1738. Charles and his brother John were two of 19 Wesley children. Can you imagine being two of 19? I don't know how many children the Roloffs are planning to have, but 19 would be quite a bit. They were both pretty academic and they lived a serious life. 
they joined this group called the Holy Club, where they tried to live a holy and spiritual life. Eventually, they would be called by their friends the Methodists, which is where the Methodist movement comes from today. Yet, as they had this holy and spiritual life of reading God's word, prayer, fasting, they never experienced the grace of God. They never understood the grace of God. They went on a missions trip to Georgia to try to convert some of the Indians. But on their way there and back, they were anxious of their salvation. They said, we went to Georgia to save the Indians, but who will save our own souls? <clears throat> they were influenced by their Moravian friends who shared the gospel with them. And they were finally saved when they understood the saving power of the gospel. And immediately following their salvation, Charles Wesley wrote the words to the song, And Can It Be? And I love that third verse, which says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused the quickening ray. I woke, or thine eye diffused the quickening ray. I rose, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. They were saved by the power of the gospel. And then in that last glorious verse, it says, No condemnation now I dread. The anxiousness, the fear that they had before they were saved was no more because they understood the power of the gospel. You know, if you were to think about Saul, as he talks about in Philippians 3, he would have been part of that holy club. He would have been part of that group of religious zealots who actually didn't know Christ or understand grace. This isn't to say that we don't read God's word or pray or try to live a holy life after, we say, after we're saved. But it reminds us that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. And maybe you're here today and you've tried so hard in your life to do good things, to be a good person, to vote the right way, to live a good life. But you've never understood grace. You've never understood the saving grace of God and how he can save you. Maybe you're here today and you know you haven't lived a good life. You know it takes a lot of grace to save you, but you don't see God's free gift of salvation as being available to you. Let me just tell you, if God can save Paul, he can save you as well. If God can save any of us, he can save anyone. The last part of this text reminds us to share the gospel with others. Ananias was a faithful witness of the gospel. He first was willing to share the gospel with someone who was his enemy. It was dangerous for him to go share the gospel with Saul of Tarsus. You can see that he's hesitant to go and share the gospel with them. It would come at great personal risk. Yet he went. He went and he shared the gospel. 
Secondly, I think he's also a great example of what it looks like to share the gospel in obscurity. And what do I mean by that? When do we ever hear about Ananias again in Scripture? Never. We don't know anything about him before this passage. We don't hear anything about him after this passage. In fact, it's a little surprising. You would think that the person who shared the gospel with Paul would be mentioned in his letters. <coughs> but he's not. We never hear of Ananias again. And friends, there are plenty of stories of moms, dads, Sunday school teachers and pastors who have shared the gospel with great men of the faith in obscurity. We don't know their names. We don't read their books. We don't listen to their conference sermons. But yet they're used by God in the obscurity and in the namelessness that he has for them. Do you share the gospel with those who are different from you? I've said it before. We're more likely to complain about those who need the gospel than to actually share the gospel with them. Do you share the gospel in situations where no one may recognize you for it? No one may pat you on the back. No one may say, good job. Do you share the gospel even in those situations? As we close this morning, consider these thoughts from Acts 9. First of all, reflect on your own conversion experience. You may not have written a song after you were saved. You may not have sang a song after you were saved. But God saved you, whether it was dramatic like Saul or whether it was simply being a child and trusting Christ. I loved last week in Sunday school when we all went around and shared how God saved us. And we saw the diversity of experiences. But yet in that diversity of coming from different backgrounds and different times in life when we accepted the gospel, we all accepted the same gospel. It wasn't a different gospel. It was the same. Reflect on your own conversion experience. Maybe you should write a song. Consider, secondly, to whom you can share the gospel with. Who in your life needs the gospel? You may be tempted to think, oh, that person wouldn't listen to me. That person would just make fun of me. That person would persecute me. Well, could it be any worse than what Ananias was asked to do in this passage? He was asked to go and tell the one who's persecuting other Christians that he needed to be saved. Consider to whom you can share the gospel with. And finally, celebrate your transformation in Christ. That you were once lost, but now are found by the gospel. That God saved you. In writing this sermon, I had some time this week when I was subbing to work on my sermon and to think through Acts 9 as I was, you know, watching the different classes. And as I was doing that, I would have kids ask me what I did, what my other job was. And you know, the first thought, emotion, experience that I had was fear. I don't want to tell them what I do. I don't want them to make fun of me for being a Christian. Now, again, I'm like twice the size of most of these kids. But we all face 
fear sometimes in sharing the gospel? What will they think of us? Will we be considered cool anymore? And then I thought about what I was preaching this week. How God loves to save the most repulsive of sinners. How there might be kids in that class through knowing me and me sharing the gospel with them in ways that I can while subbing there. That they may experience the saving power of the gospel like Saul did. And then I was reminded as well that God loves to use the most unlikely of messengers. Friends, you may be here today and you may think, I can't share the gospel with someone. I wouldn't know what to say. I wouldn't know what to do. And if you have struggles with that, go back and listen to last week's message where we see Philip be directed by the Spirit of God, using the Word of God to share the gospel of God with others. And then consider this, that within the plan of God that he set out from the foundation of the world, that God wants to use you. He doesn't have to. He doesn't need you. But that God wants to use you. You may never get recognition for it here on this earth. You may never have someone tell you good job or pat you on the back. But that God can use you in the life of someone who needs his gospel. May we all be faithful to share this gospel with, this gospel with others this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for this conversion story of Saul. God, he was an unlikely convert. He rejected you. He hated the gospel. He hated Christians. And yet we see here in this passage how you used men like Ananias to draw him to yourself. God, I thank you for when you saved me. How even when I was six years old and I hadn't done anything illegal necessarily, but I had still sinned. I had still fallen short of your glory. And yet in your kindness, you still chose to save me using my dad to share the gospel with me. We thank you, Lord, for how you've worked in our lives. May we be faithful to be part of your saving work in the lives of others. In Jesus' name, amen.